Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm Andy Wilson, along with host Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? Good. And also Hugh Sign. How are you doing, Hugh? I'm well, thank you for asking, Andrew. Today on the Music Buzz Podcast, we welcome Bob Merlis. Merlis is a music industry legend and veteran long associated with Warner Brothers Records, where he worked for almost 30 years, ultimately as Senior Vice President of Worldwide Corporate Communications. During his tenure at Warner, some of the biggest albums of all time were released by some of the biggest artists of all time, including the Doobie Brothers, America, Alice Cooper, Frank Zappa, Neil Young, Rod Stewart, Randy Newman, R.E.M., Van Halen, ZZ Top, Madonna, Prince, and many more. Upon departing in 2001, he started his own PR firm and consulting business. And his clients over the years have ranged from John Mellencamp to Etta James to ZZ Top, John Fogarty, Gladys Knight, Alice Cooper, Neil Young, Experience Hendrix, Apco Records, Dion, Delbert McClinton, and others. Merlis has also served as Exhibits Development Director for the Peterson Automotive Museum, where he served as curator for the Cars and Guitars Rock and Roll Exhibition, past board member of the Blues Foundation, co-founder with David Less of the independent Blues Roots record label, Memphis International, and is the co-author of Heart and Soul, A Celebration of Black Music Style, 1930 to 1975. Also, I should note, he's an automotive uh, enthusiast and journalist who's had his work featured um, over the years in various publications in that space as well. We'll, de- we'll delve into that a little bit. So without further ado, please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, the legendary Bob Merlis. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Great to be here. We're honored to have you here and interview you today. Music Buzz listeners, Bob is currently helping me promote my pandemic-themed album, Songs from Isolation, by Dane Clark and the Backroom Boys, featuring John Sebastian. Much gratitude and appreciation for that, Bob. You've worked in some capacity for John Mellicamp many times during my 25 years in the band. And I remember receiving a call from you after our A&E Live by Request show in 2005. You were very complimentary about my drumming and the role that it played in the sound of John's music. And I, I really appreciated that. When the band was in California on tour, you invited us all over for a barbecue on, when we had a day off. And we had a nice evening of good food and rock and roll fellowship, and everybody had a great time. And that might have been the same time or, or shortly thereafter that uh, you were involved in the, the Experience Hendrix thing, and, and you gave us all some live Jimi Hendrix CD, some CD that had just become available. You just wanted us to hear it. And I've always felt like you put your effort where your heart is. And that's an obvious love and respect for music and the people who play it. 
I applaud you not for your publicist savvy, which is obvious, but for being an honest and outspoken champion of music and musicians. So, Bob, can you tell us about your formative years and how you en ended up in the music business? You know, not being musical myself, I did take piano lessons. Here's, here's my impression of my taking piano lessons from the age of six or seven on. All the keys, the black and white keys, through, through a veil of tears. I just couldn't <laughs> hack it. I just, I thought I could sit down and, you know, be Mead Lux Lewis. And it was, I couldn't even get to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It was just pathetic. Um, so, but I was always, um, even, even in my, you know, precognitive years, I, I like records a lot. I like physical records. Uh, I must have liked music too, because they, you know, that's how you conveyed it. And uh, I remember when I was a little kid, I must have been five or around then. My father brought me a record and he gave it to me. And it, it was Tweedly D by Laverne Baker on Atlantic Records. And I, I consider that my first record. And um, wow. it's, it's great awesome. for kids. It's a funny record. It's kind of like, um, you know, it's got a hubba hubba kind of vibe to it. It's an R&B record of the 50s, but it, it really hark, harks back to the 20s and 30s with it, the way it was formatted. So I really liked that record. And I, I just, I listened to radio and I started to collect records. And I go back so far. How far back does he go? He goes back so far that when I went to a record store as a little kid, they said, do you want it in 45 or 78? And I went, oh, oh wow. no. Yeah. And um, they showed me the 78 was bigger. I said, I want the, it's the same price. I said, I want the bigger one, you know? And of course, most of those broke. But I do have um, <laughs> Carl Perkins Blue Suede Shoes on a 78. So oh, nice. I don't know if it's worth a lot, but it's worth a lot to me. I just uh, sort of, you know, got, I just became somewhat, can you be somewhat obsessive? You either are or you aren't, about records and listening to the radio and uh, buying records with my meager allowance. And, um, and I have a great anecdote about buying, a, buying um, what was it? It was uh, Jailhouse Rock and don't be pretty sure it was that. Came with a picture sleeve. And I went to the, I went to the appliance store. You bought records at an appliance store because why not? You played records on a record player as you bought an appliance store. And they had, uh, I said, I want, uh, you, they'd have the numbers of the records that correspond, you know, like number two is Elvis. Number three is Bill Haley, whatever it was. And uh, I said, I'd like number four, please. And they said, We're, we don't have that. We ran out. Well, you can now. And come back and pick it up and i went uh -uh, i don't know i don't get it but i gave the guy my 79 cents and i got a little piece of paper and i looked at that all the way home like man i gave him 79 cents for elvis and i got a piece of paper but i went back a week later and redeemed the piece of paper for the um for the record and i understood how uh you know uh, deferred gratification works at that moment that's right many life and distribution and distribution, faulty yeah. distribution, yeah. as it turned out. Anyway, uh, but that's, you know, it's like starting when the earth cooled. Anyway, in college, <laughs> I was uh, uh, involved with a group of, uh, you know, go-getters called the Board of Managers. And we put on programs at uh, the Student Union Building. and um, Columbia University, right? At Columbia University, yeah. And uh, I got to be involved with booking talent to uh, perform for the students. We, we didn't have to make money, so that wasn't a bad thing. You know, th those skills really don't translate into the real world because if you run a concert series at a loss, you won't be in business for a long time unless you're subsidized. We were to some extent. One of my greatest thrills when being, being part of that group was to program the jukebox in the student union, the equivalent of the student union. So um, I'd think of records that I wanted to hear, told the jukebox guy he'd bring them. And if nobody played them, he took them out of the machine and put more popular records on. And I got, I got the, I got the, uh, the cast off. So I have a lot got of some extra <laughs> records out of that deal. I'm still a little um, focused on 45s to tell you the truth. I've never really grown up. Um, Cause you know, that's the essence of, Anything you really want is in a 45. It's like the best of the best of the best in theory. And if the B-side's good, 
Oh my God. There you go. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I went to college as, as noted and um, was involved with putting on a bunch of concert programs, including Trider, the birds, Martha and the Vandellas, um, the Shirelles, um, uh, you know, a, a wide variety. And, um, and then I went to graduate school in California and about, um, Oh, I'd say two days in, I realized I don't want to go to school anymore. I can't do it. And um, I drove back to New York and got a job, just walked in off the street at one of the then three music biz trade magazines, the, the lesser of the three, Record World. There's Record World, Cashbox, and Billboard. Billboard continues to this day. The other two are gone. And they, um, they walked in there and I said, you know, got a job. I mean, really, right off cold. And uh, I, I said, I, I know a lot about records. I really do. I, I read labels. I could tell you the publishing company and all that stuff. And they said, okay, we'll give this guy a shot. And they hired me as the office boy. You know, <laughs> and I said, can I start in two weeks? And they said, why? Well, you could start tomorrow. I said, because I live in California. I said, you're going to move to New York from California to be the office boy? I said, absolutely. And I did. I flew back to California, packed up everything. And um, ended up in New York um, about two weeks later. And, and by the time I got there, they had given the office boy away. So they made me sort of a, nice. you know, assistant, assistant editor. <laughs> so anyway, I, um, I ended up at Record World. And, uh, and, and through Record World, I got sort of, uh, you know, familiar with the industry as a whole. And there's nothing like a trade magazine to sort of get an overview. Uh, if you work at one label... Um, you just know about that label. You really don't know about the industry as, as a totality. So, I, I mean, I, I could recommend this, but it means nothing. It was just inadvertent, but it, it, it was valuable. So sure. um, um, I was there for a couple of years, and then Warner Brothers Records hired me to um, be a, a junior publicity guy. And the incredible thing is, there's no training to do that. I had no idea what to do. I mean, I could write articles and so on, but I didn't know how to solicit interviews and, and um, coverage. I didn't have contacts. I only knew the people who worked where I worked at Record World. So after I, my, on day one, they said, hey, Mark Bolin is coming to town. Find someone to interview him of T-Rex. And uh, I went, I don't know who to call. I, I, really, I really learned on the job. Um, that's awesome. But, it, you know, it took a while. But So what are, you mentioned, uh, what are some of the other first, you know, records you worked on when you were started at Warner's in those years? I want to go back to one of my favorite anecdotes at Record World. They, uh, a duo came in, no forewarning. Someone said, Harriet Wasserman of some PR lady is here with the Carpenters. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so they came in. And we had a nice conversation. I knew they had one single called Ticket to Ride. It was a Beatles song. Yep. I knew about it because I used to track it for our radio reports, and I knew it was a hit in somewhere. And uh, towards the end of the conversation, I said, so how did you come up with the name? And Richard said, it's our name. And it became like a Abbott and Costello. I said, I know it's your name, but how did you get a name? He said, no, it's really our name. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that Karen was his sister. I didn't know that. Nobody told mm -hmm. me. I didn't have an artist bio. Just mm -hmm. talked to them cold. All I know was knew was they had a forty-five, and that's it. And like, oh no, it's our name. And at that time, Chris Christopherson had Jesus was a carpenter, so I thought they were, you know, sure. or something. I didn't know, you know, <laughs> and uh, sort of, uh, you know, was instructive, like. If you're going to set up an interview, you might tell the people who are doing the interviews a little something about the interview subject. It couldn't be. That helps a little. It could only help. Could only help. Um, anyway. But you were already thinking of the wood shavings on their album cover, I'm sure. I, they didn't have an album. No album. <laughs> yeah, no album. Yeah. So anyway, Warner Brothers, you know, initially, um, lots of different artists uh, came through the door, uh, including... Um, T-Rex, and um, we had Nazareth. You know this group, Nazareth? The oh, Scottish sure. yeah. pair of the oh, dog. Yeah. Nobody could understand a word they said. Nothing. It might as well have been German. Nobody had, we don't know what they're saying. It was incredible. Um, <laughs> That's great. And um, over the years, and then I got to meet Dion, who just called me. I've been 
working with Dion on and off for close to 50 wow. years. Um, and um, he, he was a Warner Brothers artist and um, he, and he, and he came, he played uh, the bottom line in New York, great club and he invited me on stage and a couple of other people. And we sang t teenager in love with him. Wow. wow. What a moment. Terrible. I mean, I was terrible, but it was funny. There's a picture of it. So that's, that's what that, that's, that counts. Uh, Amazing. And, um, and then I, when I moved, Warner Brothers moved me to California. There was some interim stuff that's not really worth talking about or unless you want to. And I remember Dion, I drove Dion around Burbank and he was in the back of my 1955 Studebaker. And he said, oh, I got a new song. And he sang lover boy supreme in the back of my car and i thought this is like an episode of happy days right here you know yeah. <laughs> um, no doubt. So in the first generation rock stars like dion are really important to me because i you know as a kid i lived through that and i got to work with little richard which is like i, I still can't believe i did it you know that i was yeah, yeah. for a short time little richard publicist you know i, I wow. i've said to people if it weren't for Little Richard, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. You know, yeah, isn't that right? Yeah, no question. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in later years, he was kind of a talk show staple and just said outrageous things. But uh, who cares? What he did musically was so groundbreaking and phenomenal and just changed. The earth wobbled on its axis because of Little Richard. I'm, I'm, I'm almost convinced of that. Um, so... Um, and, you know, in, in terms of contemporary, then contemporary acts, I dealt with Mother Earth, Tracy Nelson and Mother Earth. And I remember I wrote their first Warner Brothers bio the weekend before I actually started at the company. I went up to the Capitol Theater in Port Chester and met the band and interviewed them. And when I got to work on Monday, I already had something to do. I had to write that, write it out. And I've known Tracy ever since. She, in fact, made two albums for the indie label that I started with my partner, Memphis International. So um, I have a I have a lot of long term relationships. It seems and the same could be said for ZZ Top, who were signed to Warner Brothers in the late seventies, and um, I've been involved with them ever since. Really, um, it's pretty pretty amazing. I remember when the Eliminator album was about to come out. I went to my right. boss and said, I think this is going to be a big deal. Uh, <laughs> we should, you know, highlight it in some way. I mean, it's not my place as a publicist to tell the sales and marketing people what to, what to make a priority. They said, all right, why don't you go around to the uh, distribution branch cities and introduce them to people? And I, and we did. Well, I was, I was going to say my intro first came to you, uh, Bob, uh, was ZZ Top. It was one of the first shows I worked on. It was one of the last shows in Indianapolis at Market Square Arena before the arena got imploded and they opened up what was then called Conseco Fieldhouse. But ZZ had played there in the fall of, I think, 99. Um, and then a few years later, um, I worked with um, your office on because uh, Billy, I took Billy out to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway because he waved the green flag for the start of one of the races out there. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget it. You had called me early that morning and said something in the effect of, you know, about pickup time or something like, I don't remember. And you said, you know, you'll get a call. And I thought, okay, fine. And of course, this is, you know, pre texting and everything. You know, I had a cell phone, but it was just a phone. And uh, literally, like five minutes later, the phone rings and I, oh, this must be the call about the pickup. You know, I'm thinking it's going to be some handler or something. And I pick up the phone and say, hello. And yeah, he said, Billy F. Gibbons, ZZ Top. <laughs> it's just silent. And I'm just like, you know, I have one of those like jaw drop moments like, holy shit, he's calling me. <laughs> you know, I just didn't expect that. But uh, that was my intro to, to working with you. So and obviously relationship with uh, ZZ Top is legendary. So. Some, some of the big names I work with are actually functioning adults. You know, they, they don't need a road manager to go to the grocery store. Right. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, Billy is one of those. Um, you know, he's, he's quite self-sufficient. He'll, he'll take a Southwest Airlines flight and sit in the last row. Doesn't bother him at all. It's just what he does, you know. And, and people stop him in airports and, in the old days and have a he's, – he's, he's okay with it. He's not, you know, not one of those get-me-out-of-here things. He's like – he, he thrives on that, which is... When those guys played here in town, 
they went out to eat at the Cracker Barrel <laughs> and were just you know, here's ZZ Top before their show or the yeah. next day or something. There they are, Cracker Barrel talking to people yeah. and hey, you know, and no big deal, just have a little lunch. Yeah. I used to sort of strategize how I was going to get them across a hotel lobby and I'll actually get somewhere because everybody wants to talk to him and he's willing to talk to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, time sort of stands still. We got to, can we move this along a little bit? Well, and he's one of those guys that I mean, when that day at the motor speedway, I was on the back of a golf cart riding with him and uh -huh. man, I mean, you want to talk about, you know, that weird moment where every, everybody you drive by is like, wait, is that, wait, is that, wait, you, know, yeah. every, you can tell everybody's, it's clicking in their head. Yeah. That movie that came out recently about them, Billy Bob Thornton's in there. And he has that great example of what we're talking about, where he kind of says, it's like seeing Bugs Bunny for the first time, but really in person or whatever. It's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right? it's great when you take them down a red carpet thing at an event, you know, with the step and repeat. You don't have to say this is they know it because I've had artists who are, you know, fairly well known, but I have to go to the news crew and say, this is so and so rather than you don't want someone to stick a microphone and say, who are you? You know, so right. right. He he uh, he wears his identity very well. That's kind of my strategy with the bow tie. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, he's the guy with the bow tie. It's a branding exercise. I guess. It's a handle. Sure, yeah. Man. But I like yeah. no question. I couldn't wear a long tie. Just it looks good on you. Always has. We're going to shift gears a little bit over to Hugh. Hugh uh, has some questions in regards kind of falling in the, uh, you know, the, uh, the art world, if you will, from album cover uh, perspective. I don't know. Um, in, in speaking with musicians, it's usually a pretty natural question to ask how important shelf appeal is and how involved a musician is in the look and feel of their, of their product, of their, of their uh, album covers. A lot of people rely entirely on the record label um, to, to give them their look. Um, and then a lot of bands are very involved as a PR person. How, how important has your role been and how, how, in, how much did you enjoy the prospect and the process of, of creating imagery um, conceptual or personality, whether it's getting the right photographer for the band or, whether the band should be on the cover versus a conceptual cover. Well, it's not, that's not really the realm of the publicity department. I would, I'm happy to put my two cents in. Um, I mostly dealt with publicity photos. And I remember one incident, not incident, but a circumstance where I was at Geffen Records, then distributed by Warner Brothers. And we had a meeting about John Hyatt. Hey, he's from Indiana. Yes, um, he is. We had a meeting about John Hyatt. And they showed me a bunch of uh, photos, and one of them I loved. He's wearing a bow tie, like a, a tuxedo-looking one, like a Dino, you know? I said, right. love that. And David Geffen was in the room and says, we're not using that. And like, okay, it was overruled, because I saw irony in it, you know? And Geffen saw it as, people will make the wrong conclusion about this guy. They'll think he's some kind of, you know, Tony Bennett, want to be crooner or something and i thought it was funny to have sort of a roots a root americana we didn't have the term yet a, you know a roots kind of guy you know singer songwriter dressed like dean martin i thought it would but you know I, did it hold did you did, did oh, the veto oh, 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 i was i was i was overruled i mean his name was on his name was the record label i'm just a schnook from uh you know I had lots of years with john kolodner at that label and i never once met david geffen except when i i did a, a an illustration of the geffen ball slamming through a marshall amp uh -huh. um as their promo of of being because just around the time they were doing aerosmith and white snake it was important to the label to sort of impart notion that they were a rock label as well sure. but i never dealt with david directly i mean he was there so he was maybe i'm glad i didn't I don't <laughs> I think, no it was all right and the same meeting he said he was, he sat somewhere behind me he said you know you can do something about that i said what that is what he said your bald spot go to this doctor and he'll this is before uh rogaine existed as a <laughs> counter drug is go to this doctor and tell him i sent you and blah 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 and, and i got a prescription for this stuff and um it, it really didn't work as well as he suggested he's he is a cue ball i've got a little bit here but yeah you got some hair man. <laughs> 
I have a brother who's who's much bolder than I am. So that's that's the control on the experiment. I'm still using it to this day. I'm I don't like riding on escalators with pretty girls standing above me. <laughs> I, I have my landing pad growing at the back now. Um uh, so you didn't really get involved so Not much. Really, in the actual- uh, I mean, I would I would be involved with the selection of publicity pictures in those days. In publicity, I really want to have something visually arresting um, just to get people's attention. I, I've never, ever, ever sent out a press release without some something on it. It's never just text only. Um, I just want it to be, um, you know, enticing to the eye. Yeah, people don't read very much. I, I've sent out a press release, and um, you know, so and so was the artist. The album is coming out on November seventeenth. Blah blah blah. And I get a response. So when's the album coming out? Like the third sentence. You couldn't get to the third <laughs> sentence. You know, all the stuff on the bottom is like it could be, it could be nothing because I'm I'm completely convinced no one's reading that far. But I put it in there. It's a resource. You can go back to it if you want to. That's a good that's a good segue, actually, as I'm sitting here listening to you talk and some of my curiosities on the PR front, for sure. You know, we go through this list of, you know, you were there for 30 years at Warner's and obviously you've been very successful with your own company afterwards with big names. But what are the what are the you know, what are the challenges? Do you have specific like stories that were really challenging from a PR perspective that you felt like you, you helped round the corner as a result of your publicity and PR efforts that really come to mind, like, Oh, this project, you know, that's hard to be specific about because it was an ongoing circumstance. Uh, Sure. You know what, what's something that I tell people, it's like the, the, the crux of my job is to juxtapose lesser known names with more well-known names. I mean, okay, real, yeah, uh, that's it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you already know such and such. Or now with Dane, of course, he you know worked with John Mellencamp, so that's something to to cite. John Mellencamp's a well known name. Uh, he had John Sebastian on his album. He's a well known name and a highly respected. And right. um, you know, and one of the songs was a Jimmy Cliff song, so that's notable. Uh, but, you know, Bain's perhaps not a great example because he's been doing it for so long, but a, a, a really from n- never heard of kind of guy. Um, it's difficult. And I think that's why people, when you get a, a an album or a playlist by an artist you hadn't heard before, and there's one song that you know, you're going to play that song first because that's a, you sure. have a point of reference. Like, well, let's see right. how he does Hoochie Coochie Man, you know. For sure. Yeah. Versus the 500 people who have done it before. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the, that's the instinct is you, you, you were attracted to something that is somewhat familiar. Um, right. And, um, you know, so that's a, some kind of point of reference. So I, I, I always encourage people to do, um, you know, cover songs or, uh, you know, their versions of songs you might know. It's just a, it's a good way to get your foot in the door, I think. So how do you, in your, in your company that you run, how do you choose who you work with or what's your process like? I have to be convinced that uh, there's, there's something, there's a story to tell. I've, it's very helpful to like the music. I mean, it, it's very hard for me to pitch somebody that I don't personally think highly of or think has some good substance. Now, what we, we have some clients that are entities that are not just an artist. Uh, that they're they're labels, so I you know I don't I don't get to second guess their A and R. I have to I have to deal with everything that they give me. Um, but for the most part, uh, if it's a if it's an individual artist or um, you know some project that reveals itself, I have to have some relationship to it. Um, and well, that was certainly the case. It was kind of a pointless discussion now, but you know. When it was suggested, I'd be, I'd, I'd be John Mellencamp's publicist. Like, yeah, I paid my own money to go see John Mellencamp. It wasn't because the record company let me do it or, you know, right. I did it as a fan. I mean, I really did. And, and he, knew, he knew that. Um, and um, that, that, was, that was helpful because I had, a, I had some instincts about where he was career-wise and so on. And, um, but for a brand new artist, it's just like, well, if I, if I like the grooves, then I'll try to make something of it. But I, I, 
there were three cautionary notes in taking on a new um, publicity uh, project. One is, if the manager is a spouse, be very wary that, that you because you can't be as honest with them as you would be with a manager who was not affiliated that way. Hmm, sure. Hmm. That's a great point. Yeah. Hmm. It, I, and there have been instances where I've done it. And uh, it was great. I, I remember you, you, you mentioned in my intro about Delbert McClinton and his wife is Wendy Goldstein. And um, I gave her the same speech I just gave you. She said, yeah, but I promised not to be an asshole. I went, okay, in that case. Because that meant I had license to say, you're not being re reasonable, Wendy, you know? So she was, she, was, she, got, she was understanding about it. The other thing is, if they talk shit about the previous publicist, they will talk shit about you in the future. Um, I, you know, I'm not saying there's honor among thieves, but even if it's someone I don't particularly like, I don't want to hear them talking about what a terrible job my predecessor mm. might have done. Because yeah, right. my predecessor had to do the same things that I'm attempting to do. And unless they completely duffed, um, my assumption is they made an honest effort, you know. So, and, and the third one is if the project is already launched, you cannot raise the Titanic. It's very difficult. You know, if the album came out three months ago and now you're called upon to, um, you know, shine a light on it, it's already out. It's old news. Once I had the trifecta of these things, the wife, uh, old album, and talking shit about the previous publicist. It was like, oh, it was like radioactive, glowing green, and like, run. <laughs> that's good advice. Yeah. Well, how'd that end up? I didn't take the client. Uh, you mentioned being a, a fan of John Mellencamp and also a client of yours, but dialing back um, in your you know, earlier years, what was your first attended concert or concerts as a fan? Um, you know, it was a, it was weird. It was sort of a fundraiser. I, as a kid growing up in Brooklyn, I didn't get to go to those famous Alan Freed rock and roll shows because my parents were nervous. I'd get beat up because I was a little guy and, you know, teenagers were teenager meant hoodlum. Then I swear it did. It was like, you know, engineers, boots and leather jackets and, you know, scary to little nerdy kids. So really, I, don't know, I used to go to the bitter end as a, you know, early in my high school tenure, I had see, I saw the serendipity singers. I, I don't know. They were commercial folk. I did go to a concert at the Westchester County Center in, in uh, north of New York, near, near where I went to high school and saw, it's a great double bill, Pierre Paul and Mary and Martin Luther King. It's great. Wow. <laughs> I guess it was wow. a fundraiser. And I mean, I heard King speak. That's fantastic. Right incredible. Close, you know, um, it's not a rock concert, but it was uh, a classic was, moment. That's, cool. that, yeah. that's probably the coolest one we've had so far. I think. <laughs> no <guys>. kidding, man. <laughs> I mean, everybody's had cool ones, but wow. When I was in college in Manhattan, I would go to, uh, I'd go to the, uh, Cafe Agogo in the Bitter End. I saw Cream in a little nightclub. It's un unbelievable. Great. Um, I saw um, I saw the Fugs multiple times when they were really, really starting out. And uh, I saw the Mothers of Invention. They had a show called Hateful, Repugnant, and a Waste of $3. That was the name of the show. And you, nice. They had a residency, and you could go there five days a week if you want. You had to pay for it, but I, I would go all the time. And the big thing that was really galvanizing when I was a, uh, early in my college life was the Blues Project because they were kind of homegrown New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. They played at the Cafe Gogo all the time. And people in my circle would say, you're going to go see the project this weekend. You know, it was a very in-crowd thing. Uh, in my later years, I got to know Al Cooper. I, ne I never mentioned that to him. I should have, but well, it's still time. I saw the electric flag at the bitter end. There was like 90 oh, wow. people on, there's more people on stage than in the audience. Uh, and then when the Fillmore opened up and um, that was just, we'd just go every weekend. Uh, it was, it was incredible um, to see, um, you know, I saw the who at the theater that became the Fillmore. And when they came back, when it was the Fillmore, um, Pete said, you know, we played here before when it was a, and he used a lot of um, echo, piss hole. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, you know, seeing them in that place, you know, it was pretty great. I, I love the Who from. I mean, I oh, bought yeah. I bought singles yeah. by the Who. You know, I know they thought of as a as an album band, but you know, we had Can't Explain as a single in high school. Oh yeah, played the daylights out of it. They were kind of a singles band back in that day, yeah. back in the early days. I would I would watch the Who and bands of that genre. My family having moved to England at the time, so I would see Ready Steady Go and Top oh, of yeah. the Pops, and I would that would send me to the local. Um, record store to pick up my 45s of of you know, any 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 you know, all of the hits that were happening at the time. It didn't matter whether it was Chad and Jeremy or 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 the Who or the Kinks. They were all on that particular show. It was fabulous. Good time to be in England. Early on, I would read the British mags, you know, NME and Melody Maker, and the reviews yeah. were hilarious to me because they would say good value for the money they actually was like buying music by by time yeah x number of minutes or it's like really that's how you discern whether a record is good because it's long <laughs> did you ever work with barry wenzel who was the staff photographer for melody maker for years no no oh lovely guy he's shot I'm, i've seen he's in toronto now but i've seen so many of his candid photos of you know, 19-year-old McCartney and, uh -huh. and really child, I mean, people like Bowie who look like, truly look like teenagers in these photos. Yeah. They're priceless shots. You know, you, sh you should know Barry. I okay. should hook you guys up. Yeah. Feel free. So I have I have a few more PR, PR questions, sure. uh, if you will. Um, so what, you know, this this long and storied career, but I mean, the differences in, in PR and pitching and stuff have, have changed over the years in some ways. But what major differences do you see in the space you've been in uh, all this time? Uh, what are the biggest major differences that you see in the digital age, you know, pitching media versus pre-2000, let's call it? Well, I mean, the instant information and uh, and limited attention span that go hand in hand, you know, there's there's it's kind of overflowing and also we have fewer uh, traditional outlets to go to um i don't know there are that many daily newspapers that are still doing record reviews that used to be a big thing to get a record reviewed and now it it, it really doesn't matter that much uh, although i'm always looking for quotes i want to i want to use quotes and coverage to get future coverage so, you know, if I get one little break, I'll bicycle it around the country and say, hey, look what's look what American songwriter said about Dane Clark, you know, for instance, mm. um, right. you know, to, to try to uh, use that to catalyze more more um, coverage or additional coverage in, in different outlets. And it's right. it's like they're not you're not in the same. It's like. Why are you telling me Chevrolet what Ford is doing? You know what I mean? Why are you telling? We say in New York, does Macy's tell Gimbals? You know they're equivalent, but they're not equivalent because there's you know a different platform, a uh, different um, kind of circumstance, a different skew. So I, I don't I don't feel that you know it used to be kind of squeamish about telling Rolling Stone someone at Rolling Stone that Crawdaddy said such and such or Fusion said such and such. But now it's, I think it's kind of academic. One era that we didn't touch on much is the 80s. Um, when I was looking at the, the list of acts that put records out on Warner Brothers during those years, you know, Van Halen and Madonna and Prince. And I mean, holy hairdo, man. What, what must have that been like just working on? The, there's such big records, you know, during those years. You know, we were, we were, we did so well. And it was kind of a validation of the Warner Brothers mode, which was not to be really heavy handed in hyping stuff, but to let things develop. Uh, Randy Newman is the poster boy for that circumstance that want the Warner Brothers philosophy of, um, you know, just nurture artists, let them do what they were going to do anyway, and try to open other people's eyes to it. And then these huge sensations, uh, you know, Prince and Madonna are always first mentioned, but let's not forget that ZZ Top sold 10 million copies of Eliminator. Right. Um, right. Uh, and um, it was it was great. There was so much great esprit de corps at Warner Brothers. And once you were there, why would you go to another company? That you you this it would only be a, a downhill. 
you know, I mean, if you got fired, then you had no choice. But if, if it was your choice, I, I actually, I, I got romanced by ABC records and they offered me something or other. And I went to my boss I went to Mo Austin. I said, Hey, ABC records is willing to make me the vice president of such and such and blah, blah, blah. He said, what are you going to go there for? <laughs> they're not, they're not going to be in business in two years. He was absolutely right. Mm. And, uh, and I, you know, I thought, yeah, I, you know, I try to use a little leverage. It didn't work, but I, it was a, it was an informed retreat on my part, you know, to have a, a year of glory at ABC Records versus twenty more years of glory at Warner Brothers. Yeah. I love going to the offices, uh, Warner offices in Burbank. I mean, just just the experience of going into that building was fabulous, and the people. I, I worked with some pretty nice art directors there. Yeah. Kim Champagne. Yeah, speaking of great. Kim did, you know, she's a Canadian, fellow Canadian, and, and she and I worked together on some projects. So, yeah, every time I went, every time I had to go to that office, it was a, it was a treat. Well, the art department, the main part of the art department, the upstairs part, that building had super duper input from Ed Thrasher, who was the art director. Yes. Before the building was built. So, of course, he got the best office. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest office that was bigger than the chairman's office because, you know, yeah. <laughs> had the best sunlight and all that stuff. So anyway, my uh, spousal equivalent, I can't say girlfriend, I've been with her for 26 years, says, ah, you go back to the era when the record business, they had fire hoses full of money, you know, the shooting money out. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, I'm, uh, budget people always bug me a lot, you know, like. Why did you spend this? Like, I didn't even know I spent it. You know, I guess I wasn't too, you know, out there. This is full of money. He called on the carpet. Or there was a time. Yes, there was. It when, was, when it was amazing. And and uh, at for some of the time I was there, the record company was uh, meaning the three record companies: Warner, Electra, and Atlantic. But uh, Warner first, you know, the, the biggest of the three. The record company supported the rest of the corporation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they thought, oh, uh, video games, Atari, this is the greatest thing. Then it crashed and the record company kept going and movies, you know, you're only as good as your last hit and you can't put out, you know, 150 movies a year. You can put out 150 albums a year, though. So before we wrap up, we got to talk about cars for a little bit. You know, I work with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and, and Hot Rod and others, and I, I'm a car guy. So we got to talk about cars. So. Well, tell, tell us about your passion for, for everything automotive. Um, well, when I was a kid, I could I knew just at the same point that I was getting Tweedly D by Laverne Baker, I could say, that is a 55 Plymouth, that's a 56 Plymouth. The difference is such and such. And I was really good at it. I could do anything from like 51 to 60, 63. I, I can still do it. I, I'm... I'm almost infallible in that regard. There's a couple of <laughs> quirky things. Um, and uh, and you picked a good car, the Plymouth. What a beautiful car. Well, I just, my mother had a Plymouth. She had a 51. Um, and, uh, and I realized that as a kid that there were families of cars. I could see that my father's Chrysler had the same gear shift selector as my mother's Plymouth. Like, they must come from the same place. Nobody told me this, you know? And, yeah. But I, I discerned it. And I would write uh, letters to all the automotive, uh, all the American automobile companies um, asking for the brochures at the beginning of the model year in September. And like giant packages would show up from General Motors and Ford and Chrysler and, and Studebaker and, and American Motors. It was incredible. And it was like, great. I, I just got so um, involved in it. I was just an enthusiast, a, a real fan, you know? And, um, and then, Did they anticipate sales from you, not knowing that you were a 12-year-old? Oh, I, I have a letter from 1962 or three where yeah. Peter Baker said, would you like us to arrange a test drive? Like, I'm... <laughs> you <know>. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I used my father's stationery. His name was Martin R. Merlis. He had the raised letters. I could oh, scrape, yeah. scrape the Martin off, and it became R. Merlis. It was my stationery, my address. Yeah, perfect. I, t- yeah. I knew how to type. So it looked, it didn't look like a kid with a crayon, you know? So yeah, nice. pretty good. That's great. Um, I saw you had articles in Haggerty. Is that, uh, well, those are, they are repurposed articles from automobile magazine. They licensed. Yeah. I would, 
Honored car and driver for many years, and then um, and then automobile, which was started by David E. Davis, who had been at car and driver. And um, I, I'm, I'm still, if there was a printed car and um, uh, automobile, I guess I'd still be on the masthead, but there isn't anymore. So, uh, yeah. Um, but I've mm. done online stores for them and uh, collectible classics. I must have done maybe twenty of those over the course of multiple years, where I assay a car that you might want to collect and why it's you know where it stood in automotive history and so on um so but my big passion was from childhood every everything i do today is based on what i did as a child there's there's almost no variance virtually none <laughs> same with me yeah, yeah nothing wrong with that. roll cars and cats uh, that's it <laughs> You know, and girls. I've learned about girls a little later, but not that much. Mm. And um, so it's pretty much the same. My politics are the same. If a, if a, if an eight-year-old can be political, I, I was. Um, so um, anyway, my father bought a Mercedes-Benz at my urging. Bad idea. He shouldn't have listened to me. In 1958, and it uh, didn't work. But you, you bought Mercedes-Benzes from Studebaker dealers back then. They had the... They had the North American distribution. Hmm. So we go to the Studebaker dealer all the time to fix my father's car. I had no clue how to do it. And I would, I'd sit around the showroom and I'd like, I sort of like sparked to Studebakers themselves, you know? And, uh, and when the Avani came out, it was game over. I said, I'm getting that. And yeah, yeah. Probably was, you know, 12 or 13. I'm, I'm going to get that. And I did. And, um, and I started to collect, I, I, I currently own four Studebakers. I've, I have owned. Nice. Nice. Very cool. I rem remember the Avanti coming out. That's a fabulous car. Yeah. And people, you're Canadian. People say, oh, made in Canada. No, not made in Canada. Only made in Canada for two years. And Avanti was never made in Canada. Um, Studebaker itself. So, so anyway, and, but I like, I like European cars too. So I own, uh, I own a 67 Fiat, a 68 Renault, uh, of 67 Simca. Nobody knows what that is. And I have a 65 Alfa Romeo. Nice cars. Yeah. Did you ever, did you ever drive a Gordini, a Renault Gordini? I have a Gordini badge on my Renault, but it's, it's inappropriate to the year. I have an R10. Uh, they had them on R8s. And I, when I bought the car, I said, how is this a Gordini? He goes, because I bought the badge and I glued it on. <laughs> well, my friend had a Gordini, and he would pull up beside a lot of American muscle cars, and it had the, the, the Weber carbs yeah. in it. And he would pull up and sort of smile, and the guy would look at him like he was an idiot because he's in this little blue, ugly Gordini, yeah. um, French racing blue I know. Gordini. Oh, I got the picture in my head, exactly. Yeah. He would always win the. He would always get the jump on any of those cars because they had so much torque. He couldn't do the quarter mile and win, but he could always take off steam after a while. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you got to jump, so uh, all right. Best wishes to you. Thank you so much okay. for your time. See you later. Bye bye. Thanks, Thanks Bob. Bye bye. Bye, Bob. All right, so we're going to close this episode with Bob with a song of Danes, actually, from his Songs from Isolation um, record that came out recently that uh, we were talking about earlier. Um, so we're going to end it with one of uh, Danes' songs. Uh, this is one called When the Panic Sets In. So thanks again to Bob Merlis for joining us, and uh, we'll catch you next time on the Music Buzz Podcast. Streets at a standstill like a parking lot Around the state house square Folks want their lives back Their nerves are shot Incarceration tough to bear Got to step back, get a grip somehow Trust the wisest ones to guide us now Sure ain't no safety in an angry crowd for the jobless, there's not much relief Too many numbers, way too fast Still trying to catch up as dark days proceed All wonder how long this could last 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 